Good morning, afternoon, and evening, everyone. I'm Aulo Gelli. I'm a senior research fellow at IFPRI, and I'm delighted to welcome you all to this special seminar titled Two Steps Forward, One Step Back. We have a stellar panel assembled for you today, a bit like the Marvel Avengers in the field of agriculture, nutrition, and health, who will be taking us on a journey reflecting across space and time on what it takes to make research relevant to and have an impact on development. It's a special seminar as it also marks the retirement of John McDermott. John needs no introduction, really, and we will get to know exactly what he's been doing over his distinguished career in his keynote presentation that will begin shortly. We will then have perspectives from a fantastic set of discussants who have accompanied John during key steps of the journey. In John's words, the people who are commenting have all worked closely with me, but there are many people who have. We're really hoping they will also offer the lessons and experiences on research for development issues. The idea is not is to have a discussion more about lessons and future implications, and not as an event about John McDermott, which is typical John style. But we would like to hear from you. To participate in our Q&A session that will follow the presenter's remarks, please submit your questions on ifpri.org, Facebook, LinkedIn, YouTube, or by using the hashtag AskIfpri on Twitter. Now, without further ado, over to you, John, for the keynote presentation. Thank you, Alo, and it's a pleasure to be here. So. What you'll see in my virtual background are pictures from people and places that I've worked in over 40 years. Um, and, um, and so that's, um, that'll give you some context. I'm not speaking to the pictures, but you'll get, you'll get to see some background. And uh, I'll try and scoot over a little bit so you can see a bit more. Okay. And um, why research for development? So I started in development and I just had so many questions that I wanted to find out about how, what, and how, um, that, that, I, that I got really excited about research. But then the development perspective has really shaped my research into what people need, what we need to do. And then, so it's made it much more practical than theoretical. So that's the kind of basis of, of where I'm coming from. Now, um, the first, the first uh, period I'm going to talk about is my time in development in, in southern Sudan, and you can see some pictures here. Um, this was a, a UNDP FAO rural development project, and it was for the Dinka communities that were affected by the construction of the Jongalai Canal. Um, and it was meant to help them adapt and support and empower them, um, which was a rather difficult thing to do, as, as I'll describe. And um, this was one of the remote remotest areas and still is in Africa. Um, and in some places here, uh, people are, are living the way they did 10,000 years ago, but not many. It's changed rapidly in my lifetime. Um, and, um, and so two lessons from this period for me. So one is on the technical side. So I came out as a young vet. And of course, I was going to provide all these technical expertise to people and they didn't really want them. Um, but they, they were one technical thing that we could do for them was Rinderpest vaccine. And um, in, in the way we covered the kind of background vaccination and the type of vaccines we had, it was pretty clear that we couldn't actually eliminate Rinderpest where, where we were or, or really meaningfully do that. And it was gonna take a combination of all kinds of necessary things, logistics, institutional change, governance, as well as, as vaccines. Now we're fortunate we have Jeffrey Mariner here 
who can tell us what those different components are that made it work. And this is the great veterinary success of our lifetime as the eradication of rinderpest. So Jeffrey can talk more about that. The other lesson was about kind of whose development is it? And the project was really set up to help the local people. And they wanted this. They knew they needed to adapt and they needed to figure things out. And their questions to me were never about technical things usually. They were much more about how do we deal with the outside world? How do we look after our interests? Um, and um, that wasn't the thing that the development machinery was very good at doing. So we had lots of graders and bulldozers and trucks and vehicles, and they started to build houses. But the kind of the weaker part was the political economy, the governance, and, and how to protect the interests of these people and, and how they related to outside forces. And that's a common refrain everywhere and one that's that we still haven't picked up. But it certainly piqued my interest, which continues to this day and has been highlighted in COVID for political economy, governance. Can we at least put out some principles there and tracking things and figuring out how to help people? So that was my kind of initial experience. Um, the next one was I was very fortunate to, um, to work in the University of Nairobi. So it was a linkage program between my home university in Canada, the University of Guelph and the University of Nairobi. And um, it was, we, we were starting a postgraduate program in veterinary epidemiology and economics in the Department of Public Health, Pharmacology and Toxicology. Um, and I was a lecturer in the Department of Public Health um, but and then a lot of my colleagues from Guelph did come in for certain things, but I but I was basically within the Nairobi structure. And um, two lessons for me. Uh, this was a peak experience for me this this time uh, of life. And and I think one of the things that was great was being in these Kenyan institutions and working with these Kenyan institutions gave me a real appreciation of how good they were. Uh, how they faced up to their challenges, how they adapt. Our uh, department head, Professor Gothuma, was just fantastic. And he was so insightful, so wise, able to do so many things. Amos, who's going to speak later, was in Kari, but also doing a PhD with us. And he was in the socioeconomics unit. And I was so impressed with Kari, how they had regional units, how they interacted with local people. Uh, it was just fantastic. So I was so impressed with the kind of Kenyan institutions and how they worked. And that's always been a, a given me a, a great impression and strong affinity with national partners. The other thing was that a lot of the postgraduate research we did, and hiding his dogs from the from the, the veterinary authorities, and he got to work in his community to sort out the problem of rabies and how we recorded it and how we worked with communities, etc. Thomas Katow, another student, worked on kind of eco-health, community health with communities where he came from. And he was so great at working with those communities, at figuring out, at working with them. Um, and then any external students we had from Canada or Japan or wherever they were from, they were always paired up with local students. Um, and it was so effective. Um, and so um, I was really fortunate early in my career to be working in national institutions and to really have the benefits of, of working with them. Um, and uh, and uh, we, we were really accepted in the community. It was, it was, it was fantastic. 
So that was my University of Nairobi days, a very peak experience, but also one that, that informed a lot of my future work. Um, and then I moved to Ilri. And there I did, I was working as a scientist and a, and a field epidemiologist on applied research in One Health. And um, I've always been fascinated by infectious diseases. When I was a vet student, I can remember one Christmas holidays reading Burnett's book about the natural history of infectious diseases. And it was just fascinating. And I had the good fortune in my career um, to study under Calvin Schwabe, who was the original One Health, One Medicine person um, in, the, in the modern era, in the 20th century, I guess. Um, and then um, his student was my mentor in Canada, uh, Wayne Martin. And, and so I've had good fortune of working with fantastic people. And in Ilri, uh, I had the good fortune of being on a team with Brian Perry and with Tom Randolph. Um, and um, during this time, we established many and varied partnerships with public health, with veterinary uh, field services, uh, with national research institutes. And my main lessons from this were that um, intersection between agriculture, food, and, and health was really important because health had a very focused health agenda. And that the kind of the livelihoods perspective, the trade-offs uh, for people's well-being were really added to by agriculture and food. Um, I can remember going to my first meeting in WHO in Geneva when somebody seriously proposed that we should ban the mixed farming you know, smallholders in Southeast Asia, you know, the rice, pigs, uh, birds, uh, fish, that, that had, had basically been the cornerstone of the economy of Southeast Asia for, for centuries um, because of, of avian flu. And I, just, I was just staggered by, by you know, the lack of insights and, and kind of the need for cross-sectoral work. So that was a huge lesson for me. Um, the second one was that um, the disease people you work with were not very interested outside of their disease. So you go to, you, you discuss with somebody how they could fit into a broader community health or even community development program to be more effective. And they just wanted to focus on their disease. It was amazing. Um, and I, I understand these diseases are pretty exciting. I mean, some of the parasitic diseases, cystocercosis, hydatid disease, et cetera, are really interesting, but, but they affect poor populations and, and it's a very complex thing. It's like we talk about stunting and nutrition. There's a complex health problems uh, related to poverty. And so this interaction of the sectors really was exciting for me. Um, and I could see what agriculture and food and this livelihoods perspective could bring to health uh, that they didn't have. And I moved into something completely different. Um, so the next phase of my ILRI career, I moved up to management. So I went from being an ordinary researcher working in the field. And for some reason, uh, the director general at the time, Carlos Seri, decided that I was somebody who had a lot of potential. And I moved up to be the director of research and the deputy director general of ILRI. Um, and um, and I, I welcomed that because I really welcomed the ideas that Carlos had and we were changing the research program and, and really putting a great more emphasis on, on management and different things. And so um, 
I, uh, I really enjoyed and benefited from, from that experience. Um, and you're going to hear some people that are going to speak to that, um, Jemima, Amos, uh, Seganet. Um, and uh, I had two jobs at Gilroy. That's why I kind of specified them before. One is the director of research, which is a, a job that I'm very well suited for and, and enjoy. And, um, and it was great because there was a big emphasis on team building, on mentoring of young researchers and, uh, and helping them out. And so it was so much about building research teams. I coordinated between the, the, the kind of research divisions or the research themes that we had in the regional program. So basically coordinating all the research. Um, and um, you'll see pictures of many of the important researchers that I worked with over time. And we had some really exciting projects. Um, we worked on smallholder dairy, which is something that we'd started in the university that was very successful. Um, you'll see pictures of the index-based livestock insurance or drought insurance that we worked on in Northern Kenya. Uh, you'll see pictures of um, large research programs that we did in Ethiopia. Um, there was a, a, a lovely program called market, Improving Market Success for Ethiopian Productivity and Market Success for Ethiopian Farmers. And it was just so exciting, the interactions. That project really started because of the idea that Ethiopian government had, and I think people in the CGIR, that we needed to bring technologies that were developed by the CGRR in other places to Ethiopia. And it turned out that all the technologies that were taken up were ones that moved from one part of Ethiopia to another and had people that could speak to that. So it was just an incredible, incredible thing. And um, one of my most satisfying things, I think, in the Ilri days was working with closely and mentoring uh, current and future research leaders, um, who you, and some of whom you're going to see today, and working on partnerships. Now, uh, this was kind of mixed success and lots of lessons. And I want to talk a little bit about some of the public-private partnerships that I worked on, uh, some of which were successful and some of which not. Um, so on um, the ones that were successful, and, and let me talk about the index-based livestock insurance, was very much because the private sector had a very specific and, and specific role. So this is the, the CEO of the bank, and we knew what we wanted from the banks and they did their job. We knew what we wanted from the insurance companies, they did their job and they knew what to count on from us. So it was very clear. Um, we I tried to do work on vaccine platforms um, where we would take promising antigens and then try them against the delivery systems of many companies that we could never get the companies to agree to share that, to look at it, despite all kinds of, I think, clever ideas for how to do it. Um, and I've worked laterally with food companies and food companies are, I find really tough to work with. And a lot of times they only want to work with us on, on snack food and things like that, not necessarily unhealthy and nutritious foods. Um, then the other job I had in, in Ilri was a very important job, but one I was much less qualified for. And um, that was the deputy mayor of Ilri, I call it. And it was much more challenging because it, um, it required a lot of, of work on, on, um, on infrastructure, on um, rules and regulations, on reporting and things like that. 
we took on a huge project and Segenet can talk more to this called Biosciences East and Central Africa. And it was a lab platform where we basically refurbished the whole laboratory infrastructure of, of Ilri. It was a $30 million project um, linked to research and capacity development. And I was uniquely unqualified to do this, I would say. Um, and, um, but there's always a saying that it's better to be lucky than to be smart. And during this period, I was certainly lucky. Um, and so I managed for all the things I couldn't do to find super people who could do them. So we had the construction project and we had a man called Ash Randev who did it and he worked closely with me and I helped him navigate and empower him, but he, he did an amazing job. Um, then we had Segenet who ran the research and capacity program and she ran the, the Becca basically. And she, I couldn't have done that, but she was fantastic and she can tell you what she did and what she saw. Um, we had all kinds of things on health and safety um, that had really kind of eroded, and I'm sure they're eroded in most CGR centers, um, that we had to bring up the streets as part of the refurbishment of the labs and stuff like that. And we had a wonderful person, FAKM, but we did that. And then we had to report all this thing, which was just a nightmare. And Gabriel Persley was the person who worked closely with us to get all that. So um, just a fantastic experience. So many people that helped me out. And it really taught me about delegation. Um, and maybe I learned a bit of that out of desperation and survival rather than anything else. But it, it's much more effective, I can tell you, to have a great team of competent people working on this. So that's, that's a huge lesson for me. And, um, but also, I guess, um, <clears throat> I found this very stressful. Um, I mean, there was a thousand things that could go wrong, uh, the construction, the partnerships, uh, that, um, that were, that were very challenging. Um, and, but it, but it was great. And, um, and it all turned out well, I mean, I couldn't believe the construction project went on time on, on budget, um, and was, gave them great infrastructure. Uh, which is used today. And Saganet can talk more about, about how that worked, but uh, it was a stressful but rewarding period for me. So then that brings us to the, the final stage in my career, which is the Agriculture for Nutrition and Health, which I've been doing uh, for the last 10 years based at IFRI. And um, as you can see from my past, um, kind of the intersection of agriculture and health and public health is something I love, something I'm passionate about. And so I was delighted to be able to move into this program because it certainly fit my research uh, interests, my research passions. And so that's, it's always great to do something you're passionate about. Um, and while we were developing the A for an H proposal, um, Ilri had worked closely with IFPRI, and so I had worked closely with Marie Ruel in developing the proposal, and uh, and worked closely with Schengen Fan, with Marie, with Rajul Pandia Lorch, with Maximo Torero in developing this. So I had a strong, I really respected and liked the people in IFPRI that I was going to be working for. Um, and the other bonus was it allowed me to leave my deputy mayor job behind, because now I just got to do, I was the director of research for a program. So um, so that was also good. And, um, and um, so the real benefits of the a 4 h program were we had 10 years and we had considerable resources. We managed to evolve the program. Um, we had lo lots of great leaders and we had important building blocks to start with. 
So we had Harvest Plus, which was the biofortification program. We had um, work on food safety, both in ILRI and IITA on AFLA-SAFE. And then we had all the great work on, on nutrition and in, in, uh, in So there was a great thing to, to build upon, but it really needed a, a kind of research program, a CGR research program to make it coherent across the CGR system. And I think that was one thing we managed to do um, by trying to build on top of the building blocks and not replace the good work that was that people were doing, but to add to it. Um, and um, so a few lessons from me on the A for an H, I guess. So one is this 10 year period is great. And we really did change. Um, moved into food systems, we had a much more intentional um, linkage with public health. And I think those were all crucial things. Um, and, um, and so the ability to adapt as the world is changing so quickly is great. And we were able to get out in front of a few things like, like national food system transformation that are of great interest now, but we've been working on them for six years and you'll hear from Inga hour on that and you'll hear from the links with public health from from Jeff Walker um, and I had a great deal of freedom with my management committee and working on H, which I'm grateful for so once we got our program approved and we basically followed it we could how we did it was left up to us so um, a, a great thing was to manage the institutional partnerships so as we learned we had a smaller group of core institutional partners who really helped us to manage the program and took on CPR program-wide roles. And then we just had specific roles for a broader group of CTR institutions who wanted to work on specific things, but weren't necessarily committed to building the program. And then we were able to bring in two powerhouse institutions from outside, Wageningen University to lead the food systems and London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine to co-lead the One Health work with, with Hillary. And so, that, that was fantastic as well. Um, and I also had a lot of freedom to recruit people um, and to entice people to come. And that, and that was fantastic. I have a, a fantastic kind of management group and uh, who really looked at performance management, who were really serious, who, who really helped manage. And I think they, they buffered the researchers and helped them to get their work done. So I'm very thankful to them. And one of the, the big contributions, and this is from Nancy Johnson, was we were very intentional about how we were working with partners and how we might help them, the so-called theories of change. And I think in the CGR, I've been very frustrated that I don't think this is done right. We still worry too much about accounting and attribution and not as much about strengthening our contribution to what critical people do. And so Nancy was great at kind of contribution analysis, working with researchers in terms of what it took to get things done. Um, and, and that was, I think, a real strength of ours. Um, now, um, in our work on, on food systems, I think I was so happy that we started with a, a focus on national food systems and what we were going to do in four focus countries. And Inga will talk more about that. Um, and we were managed to stay consistent with the fact that we focused on national actors. And we had a nice meeting last week where leaders in the country spoke about how the, how the national food system transformation worked for them. Um, and of course, food systems are, are dominated by the private sector. Um, that's work that's still in progress, important work, but ones we need to figure out. Um, 
And so that, that will continue. But you can see for me, it's been um, an exciting personal journey. Uh, I have been so lucky and so fortunate to work with so many people in a very intimate way, um, being able to interact with them, um, being able to support them in the great work that they've done. And that's so important, I think, in research management. Um, and these people have made the program and it's been a, a wonderful journey for me to do that um, with lots of twists and turns on the way, uh, including COVID at the end. And, and uh, I was, uh, uh, I've been grateful in some ways because COVID is the thing that we're predicting a pandemic like this that would happen, but it's not been as nearly as much fun as it was before that for all kinds of people. And that's not, you know, and obviously lots of people have been badly affected, but um, it's, it's been an excellent learning experience. And um, I, um, I really um, appreciate the perspectives that we've been able to bring from agriculture, food, economics, public health. Um, it's been a great journey and a great group of people. Uh, so thank you, Alo, and, and back to you. Thank you, John. That's really a wonderful journey and wonderful uh, presentation, and um, really given us such a flavor of, of your very um, of your journey. And you know, in the next in the next um, um, se uh, session, we have two discussions that will focus on one topic that you've you've touched on, the topic of political economy of development. We first have Dr. Amos Omore, who is the regional representative for Eastern and Southern Africa at the International Livestock Research Institute based in Tanzania. Amos was one of John's first PhD students in veterinary epidemiology and economics at the University of Nairobi. After he finished his PhD, he joined Ilri to work on smallholder dairy and later on, and John joined Ilri, they worked together on this research area, primarily in East Africa. After John, after Amos, sorry, we'll have uh, Dr. Jeff Mariner, who's currently a research professor in the Department of Infectious Disease and Global Health at Tufts University in the US. Both Jeff and John have conducted research on issues affecting pastoral communities in East Africa. Jeff was one of John's PhD students in veterinary medicine at the University of Guelph. Later on, their paths crossed again at the OE, where they worked together on avian flu. So over to you, Amos. Thank you. Uh, thanks a lot, Paolo. Uh, um, John's presentation has rekindled nice memories. Um, let me start with uh, our work interaction at the University of Nairobi. Um, I count myself fortunate to have been part of the epidemiology and economics program that uh, John championed uh, at uh, that university. Great lecturers um, in Kenya and uh, uh, you know, lectures in Kenya, foreign students, uh, lecturers coming from the University of Guelph as well, um, field work, you know, both in Kenya um, and, uh, you know, coursework at the University of Guelph, uh, great interactions. I got hooked to interdisciplinary research at this time. Um, and I've been working across disciplines with uh, national partners and the communities um, since then. And I'm happy to see this is uh, becoming uh, more common. <clears throat> I think uh, the pioneering work under the University of Nairobi program uh, influenced my second men then from the Kenya Agricultural Research Institute to ILRI, where we pursued similar interdisciplinary um, research 
um, with the Kenya's Ministry of Livestock and many other partners um, that influenced a much needed pro poor dairy policy shift uh, in Kenya. A lesson here was that uh, managing interrelationships um, across vested interests is um, a very important step uh, for getting uh, research evidence into use to influencing um, outcomes um, and uh, policy change. Uh, policy pro processes uh, can be quite uh, chaotic as we learned uh, during that period. Uh, nonetheless, this kind of integrated research for development and focus on influencing uh, outcomes uh, has continued uh, to date uh, at ILRI and under the CRP uh, livestock that is uh, being led by ILRI. Um, other programs too. Um, I see uh, these approaches now, you know, being uh, very firmly embedded in uh, the new one CGR initiatives. So uh, it's certainly very relevant. Uh, my main reflection uh, on working with and supporting national partners, um, research and development partners, engaging with um, national institutions, private sector as well, um, for desired uh, outcomes uh, is that it is easier said than done, um, but it is the right thing to do. Um, challenging, but exciting. Easier said than done because enrolling people into new ways of doing things, e.g., you know, forging interdisciplinarity and collaboration within and across um, organizations, aligning with each other's, um, each organization's objectives, building trust, trust all these uh, take time. Science results often create winners and losers, as we saw in the Kenya dairy sector, um, and the losers will often fight back or resist the change. Um, this is perhaps the reason for uh, the one step back in uh, John's uh, presentation. Um, the question is whether we see a role for ourselves in reclaiming uh, or forestalling uh, the backward step. Um, perhaps by maneuvering through vested interests, for example, to make research more impactful. Um, we may need to get more involved in addressing political economy bottlenecks with relevant partnerships um, to strengthen our contribution for greater uh, outcomes, as uh, John was pointing out. Uh, for example, investing more in partnerships for influencing, um, perhaps you know, with organizations, civil society, um, lobby groups perhaps to advocate uh, for uh, the sort of outcomes that uh, we wish to see to, um, in, in terms of uh, getting our research to be uh, more impactful. Perhaps also going beyond influencing to directly engage in you know, uh, development projects, you know, perhaps you know, through advising. I mean, we may not lead those kind of projects, but we could uh, get more directly involved um, in advising on their implementation. Whatever we do, um, I think we should be alive to the fact that uh, science is but a small part of the overall change that people and uh, their politicians want. Uh, politicians, because they've got uh, you know, great influence and often have, um, may not have the kind of long-term um, you know, view uh, that uh, science uh, research normally takes. I think uh, John's uh, heroism here is in pushing for uh, outcome-oriented research. Um, and I think this has few uh, parallels. Um, he repeatedly talked about thinking outcomes at the onset and uh, asking uh, who cares. 
Um, I recall one of Ilri's uh, annual program meetings um, when John was Ilri's director of research had this as the main theme, uh, who cares? Uh, we should perhaps be asking this question uh, more often, over. Wonderful, thank you very much, Amos. Jeffrey, over to you. Yeah, um, I when I first met John, I think it resonated because he was a researcher that really understood development. His time in Sudan, which was really out there, I think, you know, really, as he pointed out in his talk, taught him about uh, how Africa worked and what was really needed. Um, my own career, I, I was very much addicted to rinderpest eradication, let's say. The first thing I heard about leaving vet school was development of a thermal stable rinderpest vaccine. And I was asked to work on a project and I got very much intrigued by that and spent a couple of years and we developed a thermal stable rinderpest vaccine. And then I came out to Africa to put it in production. And at that time, I thought I'd made the magic bullet, you know, and this was really going to straighten things out. Uh, and when we got the vaccine available, I found that people weren't really ready to take advantage of the vaccine. They didn't want to use it in ways. I mean, now you didn't need four-wheel drives. You could travel by bicycle or the farmers could vaccinate. But there was all kinds of hurdles to making this happen. There was vested interest. People, you know, they used Vindipest to justify purchasing the vehicles and having per diem allowances. And this conflicted with their, their personal agendas. So what I found was it was how people worked together. And it was, you know, institutional agendas, institutional structures that needed to be reformed before the thermal stable vaccine could do its job. So I spent about the next 10 years um, learning about this. So the vaccine development took two years, getting it in use took about 10 years. And um, in the course of that, I started working with community-based animal health workers, actually empowering the farmers in remote areas to vaccinate, and they were great at it. And when we first got good results from that, I thought everyone would embrace it, but no, actually the veterinary services were very much threatened by the process. And then I realized I had to somehow transform this into a win-win scenario where the vets would actually benefit um, from the work of the community-based animal health workers. And more and more, I was becoming a sociologist and realizing that it wasn't about virology or vaccines. Uh, it, it was about incentives and, and how you put people together to work. Um, also working with the farmers, we learned that they, particularly the pastures, they knew where Rinderpest was and they knew why it was where it was. And if we listened to them carefully, they could direct our program. Uh, and so I started interviewing farmers and developed a process called participatory epidemiology, which is basically participatory rural appraisal for epidemiology. And this tool was initially, it was scoffed at, but by the end of Rinderpest eradication, it had been so successful in directing the program that it, it had uh, a tremendous following and it's very, very successful today. So working with John, I learned how to channel a lot of these lessons into communication and how to package them to, to you know, share them with others. Um, and, and that was successful and, and brought a lot of attention to the issues. Now, in the spirit of one step backwards, it, it didn't all end there. Institutional memory is short lived. And today I'm very much involved in PPR eradication. We're still trying to address the same questions. It's like within three or four years, everybody forgot. But it's not quite that simple. Also, the factors have changed. You know, the socioeconomic factors have changed in the next 10 years. And now we have a situation where in the days of Rinderpest, there was a few wise men from different organizations who were really 
teamed up to make this happen. And that was their goal in life. And that was more important than FAO or OIE or their home organization. Whereas today things are, and it's in part because of the way funding happens, the large organizations have much larger corporate interests and it's about capturing income streams. So they're actually putting themselves before the goal, the development goal. And that's affecting how programs are, are implemented in the field. And also the donors are sensing this, so they're, they're less likely to, to embrace uh, funding some of these things. Um, so I think that's one of the main challenges today is actually getting good coordination of an international disease eradication effort. You know, in many ways, rinderpest eradication happened because several, the stars lined up correctly briefly for a period of about a decade. And we got a number of things done. That goal of eradicating rinderpest drove a lot of institutional change. We now have community-based health workers all over Africa. We now have things like participatory epidemiology accepted, but we, we still have challenges. And I'll just close by, while I was at Ilri, um, I applied the same techniques from the rinderpest vaccine to PPR, and we made a thermal stable PPR vaccine. And again, I thought, wow, this is great. Here we go. You know, we learned all the lessons. But it's been 10 years um, fighting different challenges. But just Monday morning, I got to observe the first community-based animal health workers in Uganda vaccinating with thermal stable PPR vaccine in the crowd, all on their own without any guidance, doing very competent, fast, professional work. It was, it was marvelous, you know. And then I drove across the border to where they've outlawed community animal health workers <laughs> to have a different discussion today. So it goes on and I'm, I'm still here doing this stuff and it's great. But thank you, John, for everything. Thank you. Yeah. Wonderful. Thank you so much, uh, Jeff and Amos, for the fascinating insights. Just a reminder that we'd like to hear from you uh, and you know, to participate in our Q&A session that will follow the presenter's remarks. Please submit your questions to ifbri.org, Facebook, LinkedIn, YouTube, or by using the hashtag AskIfbri on Twitter. We now have two more discussions, this time on the topic of building platforms to engage non-traditional research partners to deliver solutions that benefit the poor. We'll start off with Dr. Seganet Kilim, who is the Director General and CEO of the International Center of Insect Physiology and Ecology, known as ICP in Kenya. John and Seganet worked together at Ilri in Nairobi on the development and launch of an initiative which Seganet directed, known as the Biosciences East and Central Africa or Becca Hub. Becca provides a common biosciences research platform, research-related services, and capacity-building opportunities to Eastern and Central Africa and beyond. Second, will be followed by Dr. Jemima Njugi, who is currently the Director for Africa at IFPRI. John was part of Jemima's recruitment to Ilri around 2008, and they worked closely together as she led and developed gender research at Ilri and strategic cross-CGI partnerships, like the one between Ilri and IFPRI that led to the Gender, Agriculture and Assets Project, also known as GAP. Over to you, Seganet. Thank you. Thank you very much for uh, inviting me to this important gathering. It's almost uh, an ILRI reunion. Um, I want to start by expressing my gratitude to John and to our former Director General of ILRI, Carlos Sare for bringing me back uh, to Africa after 25 years uh, abroad, both in the US and in Latin America. So I'm grateful for the confidence they had in me to give me the most stressful, as John said, and the most complicated, 
tasks to do to build and start a program of the Biosciences Eastern and Central Africa Hub. So this, I think, as John said, it's stressful uh, not to hear to everybody who was involved. And I think my analysis is that it was stressful because um, the two items that should never mix were mixed, politics and science. So, uh, and to untangle that, uh, we, uh, we, it took considerable amount of our time, but untangle we did, and we built a, a fantastic infrastructure, and uh, we equipped them with this state-of-the-art equipment. We started, uh, we recruited young and vibrant uh, scientists who were bound by, together by the love of science. So that was uh, really fantastic. One of the things we did is also to establish a new uh, program, new idea uh, um, called a new uh, initiative called um, uh, African Bioscience Challenge Fund. Uh, and this was new and with new ideas, new funders, major funders came into there. So through the African Bioscience Challenge Fund, we brought in the, the best and the brightest uh, Africans from across the continent. We gave them access and funding to do important research areas that are relevant and of a priority to their respective countries. So that was one of the success uh, uh, areas. And we, 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 we uh, brought in a lot of partners, including uh, crop, CGIR uh, crop centers. I think the one CGIR actually started back then. Uh, with a lot of uh, uh, people at the Beka Hub artillery. So it, it became a, a really curious science hub. Uh, so a lot of times we uh, spend a considerable amount of time actually doing science tour, uh, tour guide uh, among our prominent uh, visitors were Bill Gates, uh, Angela Merkel of Germany, uh, President Kibaki of Kenya and many, many more. Uh, so that was, I think, a success story, uh, and I think John says uh, he was unqualified, but he, I can't, he was just being him, modest, but he was very qualified, definitely. I couldn't have done the job without uh, his support. Um, so I think I have to say also that what I learned during those times about John, uh, he, had, uh, uh, he has a bottomless patience. I don't understand it. Uh, so I often wondered whether this bottomless patience is a cause of his uh, premature uh, snow white uh, gray hair. Uh, without any, uh, when you don't have any valve, uh, so maybe that is a cause. So I, that was uh, surprising to me because I'm very explosive, you know? Um, so I admire also John's uh, very strong work ethics. The man can work. Uh, around the clock. And so he led and inspired all of us to do the same. Uh, he was also eager to learn. He has enormous capacity to absorb information. And he's a, a good listener. Uh, I like to talk, he's a good uh, listener. And whenever we met also, he took notes. He did uh, follow up. So he has a great memory. Uh, he's down to earth. Um, uh, and uh, also what impressed me also how well he treated also everybody. Uh, he doesn't take him, himself too seriously. And that I noticed when I went to for interview uh, 
Ilri because uh, last uh, night before my departure, he took me to dinner at uh, a fast food restaurant. So that is a simplicity of, of John. Um, uh, so I think also, uh, I want to also share that uh, John is also a devoted family man, which I appreciate, who lives his face. Uh, uh, he's uh, also um, has a, a very special, compassionate woman by his side, Bridget McDermott, uh, whom we love, all of us, I think, who came across uh, this wonderful family. So I want to conclude this uh, with uh, a deeply personal note. Uh, so I hope I don't cry. So uh, yeah, I lost my husband last June. And uh, one of the most uh, authentic and uh, uh, heartfelt message I received from, was from John. So John, thank you for being uh, you and for being there for me and for uh, my daughter. So enjoy your retirement, but I think those of us who know you and appreciate you probably will not let you rest and uh, retire in peace. Uh, we'll come knocking on your door to serve on our boards and to evaluate our, our programs and pick your uh, brain. Thank you so much for everything you have done for uh, me personally uh, in my career and for everybody who came across uh, you. Thank you. Wonderful. Thank you so much, Saganet. Uh, Jemima, over to you. Thank you. Thank you very much, uh, Aulo. Um, I think first I would like to echo Sagnet. You know, John says, I, I joined Iruri when John was the deputy mayor. And he says he probably didn't do a good job of it, but you did a fantastic job. Otherwise, we wouldn't be here. So you did a fantastic job. Um, so I joined um, Iruri as, um, as a social scientist, actually as a sociologist. And I think at that time, John, I must have been the only, what we call the non-economist social scientist at, uh, at Erie. So I had a lot of navigating, um, navigating to do. And uh, one of the things we, we started, I found when there was a lot of work going on around targeting and, uh, and innovation, and we formed what was then called the Poverty, Gender and Impact Program that actually um, was a, a cross-institutional program um, that was meant to support all the other programs of, uh, of IFPRI, of IRI, um, in terms of uh, gender analysis, impact and, 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 and evaluation, but also some very important work around poverty anal analysis and vulnerability analysis. And of course, one of my biggest challenges having come in as a young scientist was how to figure out how do you support others while at the same time doing strategic research and answering some really critical strategic research that we knew needed to be answered around political economy, around the role of social capital, around how development basically, uh, basically works. And John actually introduced me to something called the, the one third, two thirds rule. And he said, you can spend a third of your time and the time of your team working on strategic questions. 
But uh, two thirds of your time must be spent in helping the other researchers, the breeders, the ones working on environmental issues, on genetics, figuring out the social dimensions of their work. How do we ensure that what they're doing in the lab ultimately has an impact on people? How do you get them to understand that their client is not the cow or the goat, that the client is actually the people on whose lives we have to, to impact? And that is a fundamental lesson that I have carried through um, all my work. With, with John's support, we actually developed the first gender strategy at, uh, at, at, at EORI, the first gender research program at at Eori. We started, I think, with a small grant from, from, from Ford Foundation and IDLC, I think it was probably about $60,000 and grew in the following four years to a huge impactful program that was looking at the role of livestock in the livelihoods of women, how livestock could play a much more important and bigger role as an asset that actually helped women uh, be more empowered, have voice in their households and communities, but also guarantee their, 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 their livelihood. So this was really an important part of, of my growth as, um, as, as, as a researcher. Um, the other thing that John actually um, has played a very significant uh, part in, in, in my professional career has been people management. Remember I went in to just be part of a team, do some of the non-economist social science, uh, science research. And in under 12 months, I was leading the gender poverty and impact program of, um, of, of ILRI. So learned a lot of lessons from John on building partnerships. It is when I started working with, with, with FPRI on the, on the gender and assets program. But the one thing that I also learned from John is recognizing what each member of a team brings to the table. Because every time I went to John's office to ask for help, and it was a lot of times, it was, how do I support you? What do you need from me to do your job better? And that has remained a leadership principle for me, really recognizing the strength of the team and asking how, as a leader, can I support the people who work with me uh, better? So thank you so much, John, for all those life lessons. Uh, you've been a, a friend to me and my, and my daughters, um, you and Bridget. The first time I came to Washington, D.C., Actually, my children were were in John's in, in John's uh, in John's house. So thank you so much for also being a, a friend uh, a friend to us and such a support uh, to my career. You've also played a really big role in me being in Fpre. I said if John loves Fpre, Fpre must be a good place to work. So thank you so much. Wonderful. Thank you so much, Desegnet uh, and and Jemima. Uh, we'll now move to the last two discussions uh, that we have on our session. We have uh, be talking on the topic of agriculture, nutrition, and health agenda setting, including building partnerships and identifying research priorities. We'll start off with doc Dr. Jeff Varley, who is based at the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine, where he provides support to a number of ongoing programs linked to the London Centre for Integrative Research on Agriculture and Health known as El Sira, which he continues to chair. 
This includes the A4NH flagship on improving human health. Jeff and John, along with Sunita Kadiyala, hatched an idea that grew up into the Agriculture, Nutrition and Health Academy. Now a global community of 4,400 interdisciplinary researchers, practitioners and policymakers from 145 countries. And I have Dr. Inge Brauer, who's Associate Professor in the Division of Human Nutrition and Health at Wageningen University in the Netherlands. Inge and John first met when she joined what was then called the Independent Advisory Committee for the first phase of A4NH. In 2015, they started working closely together to plan a new research program around food systems that would become part of the second phase of A4NH, or H4NH, as I learned yesterday. Inge has led this flagship called Food Systems for Healthier Diet. Over to you, uh, Jeff. Thank you. Thank you, Aldo. Well, my reflections are on collaboration across institutions and disciplines. And as Aldo mentioned, in 2011 at the London School of Hygiene Tropical Medicine, we had the opportunity to set up an interdisciplinary center on agriculture, nutrition, and health across the University of London, which came to be called Elsira. And not entirely coincidentally, Elsira began at the same time as A4NH. And John and I got together and began our long, enjoyable, and really fruitful collaboration. And my first reflections are on university partnerships with the CGIR. Now, I have to confess, I have a 35-year programmatic relationship with the CGIR, always as an external partner, starting in 1986 with the biological control of cassava mealybug, but only in the last decade from an academic perspective. And in my view, the CGIR, I would argue, is fundamentally a problem-solving organization using science to that end. And this may be a bit unkind to my academic colleagues, but I feel universities are, or at least traditionally have been, problem-studying organizations. And I've also perceived over the years that there's a reputational risk for CGIR being seen to do too much studying and a university being seen to do too much solving. We work best together when addressing questions of the form, what is the problem that needs to be solved? And for instance, working with A4NH in the early teens on identifying the research gaps in our understanding of how agriculture affects nutrition actually helped to provide the basis for creating and funding of the ANH Academy, through which we created this remarkable global research community. Another reflection is on interdisciplinarity, a feature of both LCIRA and A4NH. Um, it has its challenges. You know, very good disciplinary researchers are reluctant to step out of their comfort zones for speculative projects with scientists and other disciplines. Agriculture and health is a perfect example. And I considered myself in Alcira to be lucky if I could get an established researcher in either sector to spend 10% of their time working on an interdisciplinary project. Over time, working together with A4NH, we learned that one of the best ways to achieve this was through jointly managed PhD postdocs, um, free help, <laughs> but which required that each disciplinary partner had made only a modest exploratory commitment to the beginning of uh, a relationship and also helped to train a new researcher capable of working unlike his or her supervisors across disciplines. Perhaps the greatest challenge has been engaging the public health research community and collaborative research on agriculture with the CGIR. John was really keen on this. It was a big job and I think we made some progress. We at least got our first welcome trust grant to work on you know, um, the relationship between getting rid of malaria and increasing rice production in Africa. Um, coming from agriculture, my first shock in, in, in actually entering the London School is discovering how heterogeneous the health research community was. 
medically inclined researchers focused on diseases. They had a very different approach to health research than people working on nutrition. The former might see agriculture as the problem, the latter as the solution. And I, I feel we're still coming to grips with the fragmented aspect of our health partners in the agriculture health relationship. Uh, finally, public health research is also well-funded in contrast to agricultural research. And I like to think that in agriculture, our perpetual search for research funding is one reason we explore exciting interdisciplinary initiatives, looking for new investment that might come with new ideas. And I think One Health is a perfect example of that. But even if we can get the attention of well-funded public health researchers, their priorities are often different. For instance, seeking to recruit top AMR researchers from public health into our program in, in A4NH, I, I was really challenged by their argument that their capacity to do research that would quickly save lives through reducing AMR was much greater if they directed that research at improving hospitals than improving farms. Nonetheless, um, we did get some converts, some joiners, and, uh, and I think achieved a lot. A for an H has done remarkably well in bringing together centers, external academic partners and disciplines to develop tools and solutions for agriculture, nutrition, and health. And it took determined, clever, and patient leadership, and that's precisely what John delivered. And I'm thinking that as climate change and as the pandemic focuses all minds on the need today to use science to study and solve problems at speed, I expect we'll come to value more the kinds of collaborations that A4NH has represented. And I hope that this will be reflected in the design of an operation of, of this area in one CGIR as it goes forward. Thanks. Thank you very much, Jeff. Over to you, Inga. So um, I would first like to um, express our appreciation that um, John um, invited Wageningen University to join. Um, the McDermott's table, I would say, um, uh, to work um, on food systems, as uh, um, you indicated, Arlo, that uh, we started around 2014 uh, with the discussions um, on developing a research program. And um, I would like to share with you three or four um, uh, learnings um, or reflections um, on our collaboration. And the first one is, which was referred also to by, uh, by John, is, is to have freedom to change uh, the directions of the program. I think in the beginning of our food system program, um, we really thought in a linear way, um, had, uh, doing food system analysis, uh, developing and testing innovations, and then um, engaging with policymakers to uh, scale out. But we quickly actually discovered that much more is needed and, uh, to spend attention to feedback mechanisms, to interactions, um, to address uh, trade-offs. And um, I think the composition of our team um, with different institutes, with different um, expertise and disciplines really, really supported the multidisciplinary and interdisciplinary thinking um, that was needed to address this complex uh, problem of uh, food system transformation. And especially the projects where we had, um, where, we, where we did the joint um, collaboration on developing initial papers, for example, the paper of, uh, led by Chris Bene on food system transformations and the paper that John and Ruud Ruben and myself wrote in, in global food security have been very helpful to clarify, to clarify all the, the different issues and, and uh, strategic use of food system concepts and directions. And I think this multidisciplinarity, which has been mentioned more often, 
um, uh, during this session has been really um, important. And um, I'm, I'm always happy when I, I listen to economists starting to talk about healthy diets and uh, pronouncing epidemiology on the right way. Um, but also I'm, I'm surprised hearing myself uh, talking about the importance of political economy. I think that's really a sign that, uh, that the uh, multidisciplinarity um, has worked. So next is the having the engagement, uh, which is important. So I have to say, uh, maybe in line what Jeff said, um, um, head at the university institution, um, we are mostly interested in, in, or we tend to be interested in educating uh, students and publishing scientific articles. But to be honest, we, we've, we know fairly little about uh, the people who read our, our stuff and, and, and who is actually using our results. And I think in this program, we learned a lot what it means to, to anchor and engage. And I remember that at the beginning, we wrote that in our program, anchoring and engaging. And it, it took us quite some time to understand what it actually meant um, uh, and what kind of activities were necessary. And in, in this case, the presence of, of uh, our partners in the countries and the collaboration with the key local institutions actually appear to be uh, crucial to address the country-specific uh, problems um, and to develop unique ways of, um, of partnerships uh, proactively. And, and that helped us a lot to bridge the gaps between the theory or good theory and, and, and relevant uh, practice. And, and that is something that we would never been able uh, to do as a university alone. And, and I also realized that, that this local embeddedness needs uh, sufficient uh, resourcing. So another issue is the, the capacity development. And um, uh, much of CGR research um, uh, to me um, is to support donors and national agencies in developing uh, appropriate uh, strategies and programs, but far less attention is actually given uh, to longer term investments of staff training and capacity development. And through your leadership, John, we have been able to build in a considerable component um, of this staff training and through engagement of local PhD students, uh, country training, a workshop, the MOOC that we developed, and of course, the contribution we could give to the ANH Academy, which was a really inspiring uh, weeks we had in the, in the last um, uh, years um, uh, to collaborate with young people. And we shouldn't underestimate how important it is to have a collective learning uh, with young people uh, to safeguard uh, the interest in the future uh, in, in future research on food systems. So it requires a new type of scientists that are capable to conduct interactive and critical system analysis. And I think we have been able to address that in our program. Um, and of course, um, uh, we should further support that. So um, the last one is on the private sector, and maybe we can continue to discuss about it. Um, we had high hopes in the beginning uh, to collaborate uh, uh, with private sector, especially the informal sector, but um, it appeared to be quite difficult uh, to get appropriate partnerships in the interest of private sectors to come with business propositions um, uh, that are not competing with their other interests. And I think, as you rightly said, it's work in progress. And so we, we should continue to discuss um, how to do that better. So thanks a lot, uh, Joan, for your, your, your work, your friendship, um, and, and your work stimulating us to be ambitious, but also um, to not forget uh, reality in the countries. Thanks. 
Wonderful. Thank you so much, India and Jeff. And uh, this comes to a close, the, the set of uh, discussions that we've, we had planned today. And I think we've covered an incredible amount of uh, breadth and depth that, that, that really encompassed the, the experience that, that John sort of embodied. Um, and in some ways, you've given us a primer of what it takes to, to, to set up a program like this. So I hope the, the 1CG sort of hats uh, that people are wearing sort of will reflect this in the, in, in the coming years. Um, so before opening to the Q&A, uh, we'd like to give John an opportunity to respond to these wonderful comments so far. So over to you, John. Uh, thanks. And um, the personal comments mean a lot to me, but I'll, I won't discuss those. Um, and um, and uh, so a, a couple of things that, and kind of things that have arisen, I guess. Um, so Amos mentioned about who cares and, and um, I've moved on from that, that who's going to do something. <laughs> and, um, and to me, that's, um, that's, um, that's people in the countries. They have to own, they have to lead these things. And that, that's who it's all about. And whether that goes slow or fast, they must, I think, described it very well. That's, that's where the action is. And, and related to Inga's point, then that's where the capacity is. And it's Jeff and others highlighted institutional capacities, there's individual capacities, how you bring those together, how institutions work together, the political economy, those are all important questions of getting things done and who's going to do it. Um, so I think that's critical. Um, two kind of, one thing that's come up out of COVID, I guess, is that um, when you get this massive disruption that cuts across sectors and where sectors need to work together, I think it's highlighted the problems of sectors not working together and maybe that problem will stimulate us to do better. So um, if we don't have a close collaboration between kind of health and economic sectors like food, um, we can cause a lot of problems. And uh, we have to look at those trade-offs. We have to look at the cost benefits. We have to be smart. And we have to think about the people and how, how they're going to do things. And um, I think somebody else, that was Jeff, who mentioned you know, public health, it's really benefited from social science. And, and Jemima's seen that in her career. HIV, AIDS, we'd be nowhere if we didn't have social science. So it's so important to bring in these social aspects and for them to cut across the health and economics and other things. So I think that's important. Two kind of regrets are things that need to be worked on, I guess. So one we talked about is the private sector. Maybe people will ask questions or that'll come back. Um, and I think just understanding the incentives and what that's all about and yeah, kind of what we can expect from the private sector and what we can't. Uh, but the other one is, um, and we've seen a lot of, and I showed lots of pictures of people. Um, I mean, I find Southern Sudan, South Sudan now just heartbreaking. Um, because their basic needs aren't met, things aren't are going badly. The, you know, there's been war for a long time. There's climate crisis. Their their floods are longer, and we're seeing that in all kinds of communities. So how we really need to get our act together. COVID's brought this out as well to help the basic needs of people in in tough places and fragile communities. Um, and that's going to require a partnership that that hasn't really taken off between the humanitarian sector and the development sector and a longer term perspective. So those are just a few reflections to add to the things I heard from people and, and think about what comes next. Wonderful. Thank you very much, John. And now we open the floor to some really great uh, questions that could come through from you. 
Let's start off with a question from Mesker Mwaktola from the Ethiopian Policy Study Institute. How can your research address the low level participation of women in research and in research content from developing country perspectives, like in the context of Ethiopia? Who would like to take this one? Jemima should take that. <laughs> um, I, I, I can take that. Um, and because this is something we are, we are seriously thinking about and have been thinking about um, for a long time, because, and, and there's a couple of strategies that we know work that need to, to, to be scaled. First, we know we need to create opportunities um, for, for, for young women. With, and you know, all the way from educational opportunities, because if we do not ensure a transition from primary school to secondary school, to university, to postgraduate studies for young women, then we are not gonna do that from a scientist level. So there is a lot that needs to be done all the way from um, the lower levels of education to ensure transition. Um, the second part of it has to do with our institutions and the biases that are sometimes inherent in those institutions about the capabilities of women as, as scientists, whether as biologists, as engineers, and, and so on. So there's a lot of institutional work to be done to remove some of those biases, but also to make our work environment um, conducive to, to, to young women, to make sure that funding, uh, research funding is going to projects that are led by, by women, including young women. So there, and then there's the societal barriers that we are constantly dealing with about society's uh, perceptions and removing some of those norms and, and biases. So programs like mentoring programs, I've been a, a member of the board of the African Women in Agriculture Research and Development for many years. Mentoring programs, leadership programs for, for women so that they are also able to, uh, to negotiate the institutional landscape, especially the research institutional landscape is really, really critical. So we need to start scaling some of those programs. We need to start institutionalizing them, but there's also a lot of personal change that needs to happen to us who are leaders of institutions, who are leaders of programs in terms of how we actually make intentional efforts to get women and especially young women into, into research. Wonderful, thank you so much, Jemima. I'm gonna follow up with a question that's somewhat related. Um, and this comes from an anonymous user. Um, what advice would you give to early career researchers in the fields of agriculture, nutrition, and health? Who would like to take this one? I can start, I guess, because I get asked that question a lot. Um, I think the first one, I mean, People are going to change careers and do different things over time. Follow your passions. Um, and I think if you're really passionate about something and you'll learn and, and change and adapt, but um, be passionate about something. And often the thing to be passionate about are people. <laughs> who are the people we're serving? Who, you know, what, what can we do for people? Um, that, that, and, I, and I admire the young generation for, for, for being like that. Um, then I think finding mentors, finding people who can support you, finding people you can learn from. Uh, that's always been important for me. Um, so many people have helped me along the way in different stages, but especially at early stages. So those are, I guess, two pieces of practical advice. Be passionate and find some, 
find some people who can help you navigate. <laughs> John, wonderful. Thank you so much. Let me just piggyback on that one to answer another, ask you another question, okay? If you're entering your career now in the 2020s, what topics in agricultural research for development would excite you? This is directed to you. <laughs> well, I, I find the interdisciplinary part, I mean, to, to get health, to think more about community health and poverty and development and to get um, agriculture to think more about the implications of other sectors and agriculture and food to think about. So that, to me, this, this, uh, and you know, it's not a question of transdisciplinary or somebody doing a little bit of each discipline. We, we need great researchers from different disciplines and bring them together as teams to do things. That's, that, I guess that's to me a, a high priority. The questions will come up and evolve pretty quickly. I think the other thing is to always look forward. Um, I think we tend to be too reactive and behind the scenes. Um, so I, so I think it's it's important to look to look forward as well. Um, and I know Jeff's been trying to jump in too, so you might want to ask him. <laughs> Please, Jeff. So oh, thinking about this, both Jeff. Oh, well, I, I had a thought of the first question um, when we were doing Alcera and later with, with a A4NH collaboration. We, we had a lot of pushback from our students and postdocs who said, why are you teaching us to be interdisciplinarians? There's no jobs for interdisciplinarians. We really had to rethink that. And what we decided in the end with their help was that we should, we should train ourselves in agriculture, nutrition, health to be really good at our discipline and then train ourselves to be really able to understand and talk to people in other disciplines and respectful of their perspectives, which could be very different, whether it's a social science or economic or, or animal health or, or agricultural one. So that idea of, of becoming good at the advice of being a really good specialist and then making the effort to understand other people in other disciplines with mentors and other opportunities like that seem to be um, what, what actually has, has proven to be the most successful for us. Thank you very much, Jeff. Anybody would like to add to this? Yeah, may I? Yeah. Hmm. I think what was different for me was I latched onto the development goal. Rather than wanting to be a type of researcher or carry out a type of research, I was really interested in eradicating Rinderpest. And then I did whatever it took to contribute to Rinderpest eradication. And I remember at Ilri, there were discussions at one point, how do we do research that has impact? And I would tell them, that's the wrong question. I said, what impact do you want to have? And then go do the research to make it happen. And that caused me to do things in many different areas over the course of my career, um, from virology to epidemiology to, to more social um, development sorts of things. And it worked. I don't know. Looking back, it, it, it made change. Um, so I would encourage young people to think about what's in the world that you want to fix and then try and fix it. And what research pathway, if that's the way you, you know, does that need, or is it a development pathway? That's why I'm so pleased Jeff's on the panel, because this is the culture of veterinarians. This is what we do. <laughs> it's very inspiring. Anyone else want to add to this particular comment before we jump to the next question? All right. Maybe uh, if I may please, jump in. Please jump. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, I think maybe just to add a little bit um, about um, uh, leadership. Leadership in terms of um, um, 
uh, working out how perhaps uh, junior scientists complement uh, older scientists um, in that uh, junior scientists often, you know, is easier normally to say publish within a disciplinary area, whereas, um, you know, uh, it uh, is normally perhaps the older scientists who um, perhaps would be better placed to manage interrelationships, you know, partnerships and trying to get um, engage in more outcome oriented work. So having a kind of a leadership that tries to manage the interests of young scientists uh, to balance their record of publications vis-a-vis uh, -vis, uh, doing, you know, problem oriented work, engaging with people, being passionate about people, as John said, um, that's perhaps a balance that needs to be made. Thank you, Amos. Inge, second it, would you like to add anything to this question? Yeah, maybe I, I can add because I work a lot with uh, young students who are in their PhDs and we shouldn't forget that when they work at universities, you know, they, they are, um, they have to work into their discipline and they have to show that they are good in their particular discipline. And sometimes I see that the burden of being, uh, to be multidisciplinary or interdisciplinary is sometimes too much uh, because it's not appreciated in how they are judged um, at the end of the route of the of the PhD. Um, so also for young uh, PhDers um, um, or young scientists, um, it, it's good to to you know to go broader than your own topic, uh, but don't put too much burden um, on on your shoulders. And the supervisor should also take good care of that. Um, and, uh, because um, we don't have to change the scientists or the young scientists, we probably have to change also uh, the universities and um, how they um, judge their students at the end. And thank you, Inge. I think that point is remarkable in some ways because you know innovation comes from youth most of the time, right? So it's really enlightening what you just said about you know turning the problem upside down. And second, anything you would like to add? Yeah, let me add. I think this pandemic has shown us uh, that uh, um, our lives literally depend on science and on research. So, um, so I hope uh, governments, funders, and the young and the brightest really get into science um, and into uh, and food security and uh, health uh, and so on. Um, when uh, my daughter was very young, she used to tell us, oh, tell us, her parents, that you guys are so boring. All you talk is about science <laughs> and, you are, and you, all you do is work and you are not even rich. So, uh, so, so, <laughs> but, so anyway, she ended up in science. So I think it is a really, uh, um, if I have to do it again, I will do it again. Uh, so, uh, because our livelihood really depends on it. Uh, so that's what I would say the, the younger people, I think to you, uh, uh, it's, a, it's a noble profession. Wonderful. Thank you so much for it. So we're now gonna to turn to another question from the audience from Dr. Nilofer Fatimi Saftar, Associate Professor at Dow University of Health. I'm interested to know what was the thinking behind who cares? Because in food, agriculture, nutrition, this is most important. John, I think that's, you can start us off. Oh, so I was saying it's, it's, it's about the people. And um, so that then, then you work back from, okay, who, who are the people we're trying to serve? And then what do they care about? What, what do they want to do? So that's, and um, 
you know, I think we formalize that a bit systematically in research, thinking about theories of change and what are incentives and what changes behavior. And that's all, all great stuff, but it's really about the people. And I guess um, if you're in the kind of CGR strategic meetings, when I've been there, I am just, um, I must be most annoying because I always come back to the people because it's always the thing that kind of gets forgotten. Um, and so that's, that's where I think it starts and then you just work back and, and uh, yeah, what, what do we want to achieve? What does it have to do with people and their well-being? And it relates a little bit also to managing people. So yeah, the question about um, young women and in science and, and mentoring them, we just have to be a bit flexible. It's really tough to be a young mom and to balance your career and your family obligations and stuff like that. Um, and if we're a bit flexible, the benefits are huge. And so I don't, you know, that's as, and so it's always, it's so important to kind of, the people, the key people that you've got, all the people you've got to manage them, to, to look at their lives, to see, see how they're doing things. So that's another who cares moment, I guess. Wonderful, thank you. Would anybody like to add to this uh, point? Oh, perhaps just to add that um, when uh, uh, John, um, you know, had themed uh, the annual planning meeting at Ilri around this, I think it was uh, uh, very opportune because um, the background is that um, only a decade previously, um, uh, the predecessor for Ilri, that's Ilrad, that's an organization that you know was uh, almost completely based on laboratory science. And um, so, you know, this was uh, helped quite a bit in beginning to help um, scientists to think beyond the microscope and the laboratory to um, who cares about whatever they're doing. Uh, so it was uh, the right, um, uh, say, intervention at the right time. Great. Thank you, Amos. Would anybody like to add to this? All right. Let's move on to uh, the next question from Brad Gilmore, Canada, Morelia Consulting. And Brad asks, could you talk more about science communication and alliance building? Efforts promoting evidence-based choices suggest lay folk still struggle with this. Who would like to take this? I don't think I touched on this, but anybody volunteer? I, I, I think it's a, it, it, it's a really important question because um, and, and there's two parts of it. So there is the science communication. How do you communicate complex, um, complex issues in ways that they influence change in behavior? Um, and, and that's a whole area of work in itself. I, I remember going for a one year fellowship myself to actually just understand how do you use the power of stories? How do you use the power of communication to actually translate some of these complex things to things that people can relate to on a day-to-day -day basis? So that's one piece. But the second piece also is what James John said earlier, that if you're focusing on research that actually serves um, issues that people are dealing with on a day-to-day -day basis, that interface between research and people's lives, starts to, to, that gap starts to narrow because they start to see how research is responding to the issues that they deal with or they're dealing with on a day-to-day 
day-to-day uh, basis. So we can talk about climate change, for example, in terms of skipping to a 1.5 degree, or we can talk about climate change using the lives of the real stories of people that have been affected by climate change to sort of bring home the point that we need to do something and do it um, and do it urgently. So I think what I'm trying to say, it's both um, uh, an outcome, but it's also a process of how we do research and how we identify how research responds directly to impact on people's lives. And that starts to narrow um, that gap between science and, and, uh, and people. Yeah, and I would, although I'd really support the, the stories part, but I think there's also a kind of trust and transparency challenge between um, science and the public. And that's come out big time in COVID. And um, so one of the things that I've found that really reassures people somehow is if we come with a, a little bit more humble perspective that we're learning, that we don't know all these things, this is our thought process, this is why we strongly believe in certain things, other things we're trying to learn about, instead of just being experts to say, wear your mask, don't wear your mask, do this, do that. Um, that can have a huge thing, and it works in all kinds of political economy and governance, this idea of trust and transparency and, and who gets trusted. And we really need to work on that because uh, as uh, science is absolutely vital, and I'm delighted to have been, that's been the focus of my life. But um, if it doesn't turn into outcomes and impacts, then, then I'm, you know, I'd be so disappointed. And I think um, you know, this learning culture rather than expert culture, I think really reassures people that, uh, and, and using trusted leaders and all kinds of other stuff, but we really need to think about that. Wonderful. Thank you, John. And I took a bit of time, but the million dollar question arrived from the audience too. Okay, this one's for you, John. As we move to the one CGIR, any pointers on how to ensure that we remain effective and outcome oriented with and through our partnerships? One minute before we hand over to you. Okay, so one minute. I, I think trust your researchers, um, help them build teams, support them, empower them. They'll exceed your expectations. Don't try and control them. <laughs> give them give them support and, and free reign and trust them. They'll be great. Thank you. We've recorded these words. So. <laughs> <laughs> Wonderful. Thank you so much to the panel. So without further ado, let me hand over to Yosunet, the Director General of the Thank you. Uh, thanks very much, Aulo. Uh, and thanks, John, and the panelists. Uh, it's very, uh, it's actually very difficult. I don't have, didn't have any talking points coming into this, and it's just listening to everything. It's very hard to add much. I mean, most of the people on the panel have known John for a long time, worked with him <clears throat> very intensely. So <clears throat> I was just listening and drawing lessons for for us for going forward on this thing. And one of the things that kept coming back was that. Uh, Social science is critical, uh, political economy is critical, and this actually mostly from people who started off uh, not being social scientists themselves. So I think that is really important. I mean, of course, I'm, I don't need no convincing, but for uh, taking it forward, I think for uh, people who do need convincing, this is a really important lesson. It's at the heart of what we try to do in the OneCGR on the bundling innovation framework, if you want, where we really need to work on having uh, innovations in, um, on the science side, on the technology management, but certainly also on the policy side and on the political economy framework that is around it. 
In a way, you know, COVID-19, which we experiment today and where I, John and I have done a lot of work together on and thinking about, it's, it's in a way, it's a quasi-natural experiment, if you want. I mean, economists until quite recently could not do experiments like uh, other scientists uh, could or, or not, uh, or most social scientists couldn't. I mean, Jemima referred to it as the non-economic social sciences. I'm going to quote her on this. It was an interesting Anyhow, so recently we've done some work with the work with Esther Duflo and, and Abhijit Banerjee on, on RCTs, etc., but not on a large scale. And so then if you have shocks to the system, it really learns you lessons about how the world behaves, how the world reacts. Uh, the, world, the fall of the Berlin Wall was something, the opening of China, etc., but also I think COVID-19. And the lessons are... I think very much in line of what we, what uh, the theme of the session here today, it's uh, the, the two steps forward, one step back, actually. I think some of what has been achieved is quite remarkable, but some of it is, is not. I noted from what uh, Jeff Mariner said on, uh, he said, well, it took, it took two years to develop the vaccine. It took 10 years to get them to use it, get people to use it. And in a way, what we're seeing today seems a bit uh, consistent with that as well. I mean, yesterday, over the weekend, there were massive demonstrations all over Western Europe. Uh, even people who work in hospitals supporting the demonstrations against the uh, social distancing measures, etc. And so this is hard for many of us to understand why it is, and that's human behavior. And so we think about political economy, uh, the role of scientific advice going forward, etc. These are really, really crucial issues, and it has been mentioned by, by many of you. Um, and so the question is, can we change the world and will we change the world are two crucial elements of it. The can be has to do with knowledge, has to be with partnerships, scale of, of the, being able to change it, but it's also about incentives and again, uh, political economy. Um, then my final point is on the people. Many of the speakers have mentioned it. Uh, Jemina has mentioned it several times in her talk, but also other people and John has come back. So it's really about the people. It's about the world for which we are working, which we try to make a better place, change the um, environment, the opportunities for people to, uh, to be able to achieve an, uh, a healthy and a, and a, and a fulfilling life. Um, but it's also about, as came up in the last intervention several times, it's about us, the people who are trying to do the analysis, the studies, the policy work, etc., to also make sure that we stimulate them, that we create an environment that people can thrive in, that we support them. And so these lessons are obviously hugely important going forward in, in, for us in general, I think, but also in the 1CGIR if we try to develop this new framework to work in, the new research uh, program, etc. And so, and let me end with the last thing that John said about we should be humble, but, and I'm adding, but ambitious as well. Okay, and those two things together. Um, let's draw on this list. Thanks, John, for everything. Thanks also the panel members here. I think this was a fantastic session. Thank you. Wonderful. Thank you so much, Joe. Um, so thank you. Thank you, John, for all your wonderful leadership over this, uh, and this amazing uh, panel presentation gave us today. I'd like to thank all of you for joining us. Uh, please join IFPRI tomorrow at 9 a.m. EST for a CGR research program on policies, institutions, and markets book launch on advancing gender equality through agriculture and environmental research, past, present, and future. Once again, thank you so much. Bye-bye.